Are you an accredited investor looking for a new opportunity to generate passive income and build the retirement of your dreams? Then elevate your investment game with Viking Capital, where wealth meets wisdom. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting out, Viking Capital can help guide you towards financial freedom through passive real estate investing. With strong and transparent underwriting, Viking identifies low-risk opportunities with the goal of preserving investor capital and maximizing long-term growth potential. And their accessible and responsive investor relations team will help you understand how each investment will impact your unique financial goals. With $800 million in assets acquired, more than $230 million in equity raised, and more than 5,000 units under management, Viking Capital is your path to early retirement. To learn about Viking Capital's latest investment opportunity, which is available for you right now, visit go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best. That's go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best to get started today. Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, Promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. It's cliche, but it is true. Understanding how the math works on any investment at a high level, and sometimes just have to make baby steps to take those decisions to the next level. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best ever listeners, welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Slocum Reed, and I'm here with Misi Liu. Misi is joining us from Fayetteville, Arkansas. She is the managing partner at Life Mission Capital, a commercial real estate firm focusing on multifamily. Currently a GP of 348 units, a fund manager of 929 units, and an LP in another 187. Misi, can you start us off with a little bit more about your background and what you're currently focused on? Yeah, absolutely. So you already mentioned about my involvement with Life Mission Capital, which I'm the founder of as well. And we're mostly a private equity firm that helps busy professionals invest in real estate by providing the white glove service. So we do a lot of the due diligence, a lot of the underwriting and talking to investors to help them place their capital into the opportunities that we're either a coach and our partner or fund manager on. 
I also have a full-time W-2 job, which are in the kind of the data analytics space. And that's why I've been able to leverage my due diligence skills, utilizing kind of data analytics background as well. Nice. So you differentiate here between being a general partner and a fund manager. Honestly, Misi, in a way that a lot of people on podcasts like this one wouldn't. Can you tell me a little bit about where you and why you differentiate between fund manager and GP? Yeah, there was really no reason to differentiate. And a lot of people just kind of put it all together as general partners. And I just wanted to be specific and also be accurate because I believe your podcast manager reached out to me about GP units and I wanted to be accurate in the representation. So I spread it out. So in case there's any misunderstanding, but in general, as anyone I talk to who's a passive investor, I just explained to them about involvement, right? Being a fund manager, we're also in LP positions. So my investors interests are more aligned with me as a fund manager versus in general partners, there is potentially a smaller conflict of interest, relatively speaking. So those are some of the things I will usually share. Macy, that's an interesting way to differentiate when it comes to conflict of interest. Can you go a little further into that in the differences with regards to conflict of interest, where you call yourself a GP and when you call yourself a fund manager? And if you could, Macy, When you're a general partner, what all activities or responsibilities do you have beyond raising capital? Absolutely. When I'm a general partner, I help with a lot of the investor communications, even after the raise, also attending asset management calls, helping with anything that's needed from an asset management standing point, helping with maybe compiling the report for investor updates, P&L, profit and loss, things along those lines. So when I'm a fund manager, responsibility are somewhat similar, but I'm not operating at a property level. I'm operating at the fund level. So we have the fund PPM, the fund portal, the fund profit and loss to work through along with my partners to present that to the investors. So that's kind of in a nutshell. And in terms of the conflict interest part that you mentioned, what I mean is that we're in the LP positions so that when we fight for, let's say, a lot of times in, for example, one of the opportunity I'm looking at, even though we're LP positions, but the sponsor created a a board is called Investor Advisory Board. So we as fund managers sit on it because our interests are exactly LP interests. So we're representing things that's more like, okay, we want to make sure our LPs and all the LP shares we're getting are going to be continue to get our PREF. And because of that, we would like to vote for sell versus refinance versus other general partner side. As you know, a lot of the multifamily opportunities are more on the back end in terms of general partner compensation. So there may be a slight conflict of interest of wanting to sell faster versus holding into cash flow as well. That's interesting. I know very few general partners who would be willing to let their LPs decide whether it was time to refi or sell. Are you saying that's what this sponsor does? Actually, it's not a vote. It's more of a advisory board. So there's no voting gotcha. involved just having that relationship and the platform, right? Because we won't be the only person involved. When you have a platform and when you have majority of the investors who are the bigger investors, in this case, fund managers, saying that that we believe this is not the best decision, it may not have a legal voting right, but it does put some social pressure, if you could call it, on the sponsor's decision. Missy, that makes 
a lot of sense. And it's good to hear that you hold sponsors' feet to the fire, making sure that they are getting returns for their LPs. With your data analysis background, Misi, tell us about an aspect of fund management and asset management that you find comes naturally to you or that you excel at that you see other general partners and fund managers who don't have your background struggle with? <laughs> that's actually a very interesting question. The reason I say is you mentioned asset management. That's probably something I do not enjoy. And <laughs> uh, as I was working through things this morning, whether it's at the property level or at the fund level, I just don't enjoy that. I don't enjoy paperwork. I don't enjoy administrative work. But what I do enjoy is talking with investors and digging into numbers in terms of you know, projected performance, underwriting. Those are what I do enjoy, which I leverage my deep analytics skills in. One of the main reasons I invest in real estate is because the numbers add up. I try to do day trading at one point and looking at trends and projections on different charts. And it just didn't make sense to me. But when it comes to real estate investing, the numbers add up. I can say roughly with this confidence interval, perhaps, that this deal is going to make it to the projected returns we have. And also another aspect of my skill set that I didn't mention is the sales and marketing background. I did also graduate with my undergraduate with sales and marketing and also supply chain. So I get this skill set developed about talking to people, connecting with investors, understanding their pain points and understanding where their motivations are. On top of that, with my supply chain and the operations background, mapping out standard operating procedures to help with the overall deal flow and the overall process. But when it comes to me actually doing it, I don't actually enjoy repetitive process, but I do enjoy mapping out the process and doing the underwriting so that everything comes together in a more holistic cycle for my company and my investors experience. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me, see. Specific to after the capital is raised, after the purchase closes and you're executing on your business plan, where is it that you see your skills and expertise developed as a professional data analyst, where is it that you see that translating the most during the hold period, the execution of the business plan? One thing I see as a private equity firm that works with five to 10 selected sponsors, one thing I see is everyone documents their asset management in a slightly different way, especially when we're working with some of the bigger fund opportunities that they have so many assets grouped under portfolio that grouped under the fund. So the visualization of what's happening in their properties sometimes can be a little challenging. So the actual reporting rolling up and the understanding projecting out what would it be like this month with our current macroeconomic situation in terms of interest rate, if we were to refinance 12 months from now, how likely we're off, not just in terms of rent collections, but in terms of decisions we'll have to make on sell or refinance. I think when you look at a larger company, right? Like I work for a very large company on my W-2 job. We're constantly projecting P&L, right? And that's not just, in this case, cash flow that we're projecting coming with the remaining of the year, but we're also projecting the five-year hold, how closely we're on track with that. I know there's a lot of things that can happen within five years, but having something that's easy for everyone to get to that represents how closely we're on or off track and when we should push more. And when we have a little more breathing room, I think that's important. So what I'm going through as I'm working with different operators is to kind of identify the key metrics people are tracking and perhaps figuring out a way kind of like what Neil Bawa does 
how he tracks leases versus how many people actually came and how many people actually signed up, how many people actually went through the credit check process and just understand that a little bit more. So have really more of a data point, data-driven decision-making, not just on the property management side, but more on the investor's experience and investor's return side, kind of have all that input, the operations and the potential output kind of mapped out a little more clearly. It's interesting to hear you say all of that, especially when you say that you don't enjoy asset management. But that's an interesting point about Neil Bawa and those kinds of metrics. I'm an apartment owner operator in Cincinnati, Misi. My family is from Northwest Arkansas. Go Hogs. But my investments are here in Cincinnati. And I recently, like late last year, started really seriously tracking those leasing metrics, to your point and using them as an indicator of where I was by comparison to market rents and implementing systems for getting better feedback from showings, things like that. And I've had my systems ironed out to streamline the process for quite a while, but not to analyze it and not to take my daily operating activities and build a data set that informs my investing at a higher level, where's the rent rate, what renovations matter. I started doing that and I realized some very simple things that I could do. Like if my apartments are on the side of the building that's shaded in the afternoon when all the showings are happening and there are no overhead lights, spend 30 bucks, put a couple lamps in the apartment and it shows beautifully. But without taking the steps to collect data and analyze it on a regular interval, simple things like that I would have missed. So I totally get what you're talking about and the value of prioritizing the collection of data so that you have a data set that you can analyze. You see, I'm right there with you. Yeah. And it's also about going in there with a foundation of what are the key metrics to track? Because I see sponsors, some of them, they would be putting on the presentation, tracking the operating income pro forma, but then in their monthly report, they may be looking at net cash flow. So it's harder for passive investors to look at, you know, are we really on track or off track from a number standpoint? So laying a good foundation for the metrics you mentioned is going to help companies scale versus being a lot more manual. I enjoy the part of creating structures and organizations to make it scalable. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. When it comes to scaling your real estate business, is lack of capital holding you back? Raising private capital on demand can be a major challenge, but you can get the knowledge and tools you need to succeed when you attend Dana Cornell's three-hour Raise Capital Masterclass Live. After starting out with no capital or relationships, Dana has raised over $2 billion, that's with a B, billion dollars twice in the last 20 years. And he has made it his mission to share the best of what he's learned with business owners and real estate investors like you. You can learn more at DanaCornell.com forward slash best ever. Dana's Raise Capital Masterclass allows you to immediately unlock and raise capital on demand, drastically increasing your business's growth. If you're ready to take your business to the next level, go to DanaCornell.com forward slash best ever and enroll today. And right now, best ever listeners, you can enroll for over $500 off. Go to DanaCornell.com forward slash best ever. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at PassiveInvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. PassiveInvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. 
They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive Investor Guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. Missy, it's easy to talk about what we're naturally good at. If I can ask, where within commercial real estate and multifamily syndication, where have you struggled? What are the skill sets that you had to develop as a result of being an apartment investor? Yeah, I would say the storytelling piece. So coming to the podcast today is about telling stories, but it was difficult, especially on the social media platforms. I wasn't used to posting daily or multiple times a day, just posting about educational content or posting about what we're doing. I'm such an in-the-moment person, so when I'm doing things, I'm doing things. So being able to capture the moment and letting people know what I'm working on, I would say that's been a skill, and I'm still trying to figure it out, to be honest. So being an influencer sometimes is a skill set that I don't think about. So I kind of got my left brain and right brain, and one side I'm a very analytical person, on the other side I'm super outgoing, and sometimes they kind of collide and sometimes they don't. So I'm definitely working on continuing to engage with people on the social media platforms. How can I better grow the platforms? And one of the things that's been somewhat helpful is not necessarily on the social media platform, but on the overall digital marketing is Russell Brunson's book. He has so many books and one of them is Dotcom Secrets. So understanding the entire buying cycle and how people really have different awareness levels has really helped me grow in that space. Nice. Missy, remind me, when did you first get into apartment syndication? As a limited partner, I started late last year. And then shortly after that, I started as a general partner. It took me about six to seven months to really understand the whole process to a point that felt comfortable. As I said to you, I'm a data person. So it wasn't enough for me to just to see the investment summary. I had to understand how the numbers added up. So I took intense courses, masterminds to make sure I knew how to underwrite and make sure that every opportunity I was investing passively or actively, I understood how the numbers added up. Gotcha. Missy, moment of honesty here. This is a question I'm not even sure how to ask. So I'm going to start rambling, see if a question comes out, and hopefully our best ever listeners gain value from it. I am not a general partner. I'm not involved in any apartment syndications yet. I'm a buy and hold investor with a focus on repositions, proper Burr style deals where there's enough forcible appreciation for a cash out refinance. And one of the reasons I'm comfortable doing that, and I'm comfortable taking on major rehab and tackling complex current, like today situations that I have to resolve is that they don't involve forecasting into the future any more than six to 12 months. I really only need to know what I need to do to get between now and a solid T3 that will let me perform a cash out refinance. I don't have to project out five years. I don't have to project uh, growth into a three to seven year hold period. 
I know I can do vacancy factor, break-even ratio. I know the calculations for making sure that I'm stress testing my models and my properties, but I've never attempted to assess the performance of one of my properties five years into the future. Given your experience as a data analyst, your underwriting experience, your mastermind experience, I hope the best ever listeners get some value out of this, but give me some advice. What are your best tips for me already understanding the apartment investing space, but not understanding how to future pace my projections beyond, you know, six to 12 months. What are your top tips for me when it comes to building out a business plan and financial projections five to seven years into the future? To me, my mind always thinks in three parts, input the model and the output. And what I mean by that is you put in the money and the money comes out in cash flow, appreciation, and tax benefits. Those are really the three buckets that you would actually get the returns. So from a cash flow in terms of projection five years out, that's really depending on the income and expenses and mortgage. So if it's fixed rate or whatever rate you haven't negotiated, that you can kind of calculate from there based on if there is a rate cap, if it's fixed, and how long-term is. The wiggle room is pretty small, I would say. So the key metric to understand is rent growth and expenses in terms of big ticket items or the expense ratio happening at the property or property of similar sizes in a particular region. So I feel you can get pretty close just by understanding that. And then all those impacts on the operating income, which affects when you sell the apartment. So understanding that that's also a variable, understanding how your NOI would likely to be based on some how those factors change and understanding the cap rate. That's going to be the main thing, understanding the cap rate and really underwriting conservatively, you know, like this time of the market, we're really underwriting at least 100 to 125 basis point expansion between enter and exit just because of so much uncertainties. So understanding all those will help us have a more conservative feel to our projections and to our investors. One thing is if you're investing soft, maybe you can take a little bit more risk if you know the market really well. But when you're dealing with somebody else's money, we really want to make sure the numbers really are more on the conservative side due to the fact with the factors I mentioned to you. So input, output, and the model. So the model is kind of all the hard work and the the track record and things like that we've, we've done. So those are kind of how I judge it, um, how I like to present the information as well. Gotcha. We're recording at the end of July, 2022. Do you feel like your model is being tested? Might not be the right way to put it. Are you having to adapt your models to the economic volatility that we're experiencing right now? Q2, Q3, 2022? Yeah, definitely. Because there's so much uncertainty in the market. Think of a bell curve, right? For anyone who don't know, like that goes up and then go down. So you kind of have a likelihood of things happening. And there was Chatham Financials, different websites and resources, financial institutions out there projecting not just a treasury rate and not just interest rate, but also potential volatility that they can see coming in the market, maybe given geopolitical situations, oil prices and things like that. So you kind of factor in what you think is reasonable. And then the stress test, like you mentioned, well, not likely, but what if it happens if there is another war and things like that? What if the cap rate goes up by this much? How likely it is, right? That's why we never present opportunities just with like, this is our projected returns. It's well, I was going to try to say this is going to be roughly this range, but even it could go one way or the other. Just setting that expectation is the key. 
and understanding the likelihood of things occurring. So that's all it is with you know, the projections and models. Like I actually work in the forecasting department of one of the largest companies in the world, and we're never right in our projections because that's the point. You're never supposed to be 100% right. So you just try to be on, on the conservative side. Awesome. Misi, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Sure. Awesome. Misi, what is the best ever book you recently read? I would say the dot-com secrets I mentioned, I think every business person is a marketer. So it just opened up my mind about marketing. What is your best ever way to give back? I would say give back on areas that's focused on education, whether it's pre-K education or financial education. I loved hosting and attending junior achievement volunteering programs, teaching kids how to do finance in a fun way, budgeting and different things like that. And That's a way I like to give back because it's things I didn't know I had before. So giving back to people so they can know how to do that. Nice. Thus far in your commercial real estate investing career, Macy, what is the biggest mistake you've made and the best ever lesson that resulted from it? I would say is confusion leads to basically no conversion. So I was talking to a lot of people at one point to help them invest passively in real estate space. But I think I was overcomplicating what real estate syndication is. And a lot of people getting really confused and maybe a little scared because they didn't know what it was. So they never invested with me. So once I turned that around, I was able to convert a lot more investors and they were able to really understand and with knowledge comes with trust. So that's been something that I've been slowly getting success in. Nice. And what is your best ever advice? My best ever advice is to get started by real estate and wait. I know it's cliche, but it is true. Understanding how the math works on any investment at a high level and sometimes just have to make baby steps to take those decisions to the next level. Great. And where can people get in touch with you? Visit lifemissioncapital.com. There you'll find some of my eBooks and my contact information as well, whether you're a beginner or experienced investor. And that link is in the show notes. Macy, thank you. Best ever listeners, thank you as well for tuning in. If you've gained value from this conversation about data analysis and underwriting and asset management in multifamily syndication, please do subscribe to our show. Leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend who's already an investor or interested in multifamily investing so that we can add value to them as well. Thank you and have a best ever day. Thank you so much, Slocum.